0: Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. For more information on History Hub and to download many other podcasts, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. In this episode, a recording from The Meaning of Poverty, a workshop which was held in the University College Dublin School of History and Archives in September 2014. The workshop was organised by Dr. Carl Houlihan, Dr. Lindsay Erner-Byrne and Professor Mary Daly and funded by the UCD Seed Funding Scheme. This episode features the conference keynote, which was given by Professor Mark Peel, Pro-Vice-Chancellor and Head of the College of Arts, Humanities and Law at the University of Leicester. In his highly engaging lecture, Dramatising Poverty, Comparative Perspectives on Case Files, Stories and Remedies, Professor Peel presents a comparative and transnational history of poverty in the 20th century, using examples from Britain, Australia and the United States.
1: I think it, it's not unimportant how I came to to this book, which is 10 years old now, The Lowest Rung, and that was my attempt to do oral history. I think all historians should do oral history once and then stop uh, and, and never do it again. A bit like biography. I think we should all do biography once and then never do it again. Um, but what I did in that book was I'd written about my own... Uh, Experiences growing up in a, in a working-class suburb in Australia in, in the lowest rung, what I went and did was I went and, and spoke to about 350 people living in the kind of the worst suburbs of the four biggest cities in Australia. And I listened to them. And, and what I wrote a book about was about what happens when you listen to the poor uh, and listen to the people who work most closely with them. And I think you'll see the echoes of that in this paper as well. I decided, of course, to run back into the past where everybody was dead because it's much safer there. So having done our old history, I then retreated back into the past. But um, I think you will see the imprint of of that here. So what I wanted to to share with you today um, is a brief exploration of how I tried to read the case files of eight different agencies in five different places... And in discussing possible contributions with Carol, it seemed to me that it might be most useful to focus on on three things. One is on how I tried to read the case files, which have some very similar dilemmas, I think, to letters and they even, in fact, workhouse registers in, in, of how we use sources in, in this kind of history. Also, it was a comparative book, um, so look at the similarities and differences between places and across time in the hope that that will also help sort of set a context for your own explorations in the Irish story and also finish with how we might use sources like case Files as part of a history of poverty and welfare that focuses on, on interaction, on contest and on change. Um, the book that I wrote on the basis of these files, it's called Miss Cutler and the Case of the Resurrected Horse. I can explain why. Um, it'll all become clear, I hope. Um, it was seen by my publishers as either a remarkably brave or a remarkably stupid um, <laughs> title. and It's fundamentally a book about stories. Um, it's a history, essentially, of what the people who encountered the poor during the 1920s and 1930s heard them saying and how they formed what they heard into dramatised explanations of poverty's origins and remedies. It's a comparative study of Australians, Americans and Britons, of people who shared a commitment to tackling poverty, as well as a set of of investigative methods they thought would reveal the best solutions. And it's an attempt to use case files as the basis for forms of imaginative historical writing that will help perhaps do more justice to those who wrote them and to those about whom they were written. To read nearly 2,000 case files, and yes, I did read nearly 2,000 case files, is to read a compelling record of encounters, agreements and disagreements. It is patchy, and in a sense, I was only able to follow where someone, a librarian or archivist, an earlier historian or a prescient social worker who stood against the discarding zeal of the 1950s and 1960s, someone somewhere thought to preserve a large collection of files for the scholars of the future. And all these organisations, I had those files and also the more or less complete records of administration, policies, annual reports, discussions of casework and publicity material. The files were produced during the 1920s and 1930s and the people who produced them worked for important agencies. The Charity Organisation Societies of London and Melbourne, the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, the Boston Children's Aid Society and the Minneapolis Family Welfare Association were leaders in the transition from an earlier model of charity visiting to professional casework, while the files of Oregon's Child Welfare Commission and associated charities provide a glimpse into the sometimes turbulent world of public and private charity in a frontier American state. These were major local and sometimes national institutions during a period of significant transformation. All played an important part in training the first two generations of paid professional and mostly female inquiry officers, agents and investigators, who would in time begin to call themselves case workers and social workers. All were part of local welfare landscapes in which they were particularly influential as interpreters, dramatisers and publicists of a new form of charity investigation, casework and social work. In part because they left the more humdrum tasks of dealing with the poor to agencies representing other faiths including the Salvation Army and Catholic and Jewish charities or to public authorities. All did a great amount of general welfare work, including the two organisations that primarily focused on child protection. And because these agencies amassed evidence and made inquiries in all possible directions, their case records bristled with letters to and from other organisations, government bodies, reform groups and professional associations in their own territories and beyond. They also wrote to each other, participating in a national an international exchange of ideas. So in examining them, it is possible to hear a much broader conversation about poverty. In these files, women and a few men recorded what one described as, as her actual contact with working class life. For interwar investigative social work, that contact and the case file it generated took on profound importance. The file was the hallmark of professional investigation and the guarantee of a just outcome. Each began with a profile of the applicant to which the worker added details of home visits and other investigations. The home visit was especially critical. Mary Birtwell, a charity investigator in Boston, described the home visit as a study of the entire history, character and resources of the whole family, a gathering of all the information from every available source with a view to searching out the real causes of need. Not surprisingly, then, the more detailed files brimmed with meticulous profiles, documents and detailed narratives of encounters and conversations in which the the worker melded her story of encounter with the larger narrative about poverty's causes and stories were produced for audiences... Overseeing officials defaced neat files with exclaiming pens and underlining pencils. Workers produced shortened versions of the most telling cases for executive committees and case conferences. As they wrote up and revised, they added flourishes and dramatic momentum, drawing particular stories towards towards exemplifying truths about dependency, effort and character. In the training and publicising work of these agencies, these stories introduced submissions to public inquiries, appeals for donations and appeared in newspapers next to stage photographs of the grateful recipient. This was a form of charitable writing that took very seriously the need to create knowledge for broader publicity and education as well as to solve the individual case itself. I'm particularly interested in how case files drew upon and in turn informed broader narratives that aim to explain poverty's true causes and characteristics. Poverty must always have a story that explains the present and looks into the future. I think we've seen that coming out again and again today. That story can focus on what is wrong with the poor and how they must be saved or transformed, or it can speak of the larger wrongs that poverty reveals and how these might be put right. Or it can do a bit of both. And of course, the poor, especially poor women, also tried to shape the story. For them, it was important to offer explanations that would secure them what they needed, ideally without too much time-consuming and intrusive interrogation. In this way, case files form an archive of interactions, debates and competing versions of the truth. This was was sometimes a prolonged war of words, and sometimes a brief skirmish, but it was always, as British historian Eileen Yeo recognised, a fascinating theatre of encounter. It's important to remember, too, that these stories had a real impact upon the poor themselves, both in the determination of individual responses and the shaping of a broader understanding about poverty and inequality. These stories had real power. They shaped poor people's experience, they shaped outcomes, they shaped other people's assumptions and convictions. They described and they prescribed. Above all, they provide a crucial window into what people who were not poor thought was true about those who were. Case Files became dramas and melodramas, comedies and satires. The best stories presented tableau in a theatre of class with more or less stock characters performing scripts of detection, redemption and salvation. They captured the dilemmas of proving entitlement, praising the grateful and deserving poor and condemning the ungrateful graspers. They proved that investigative methods and professional expertise could help the needy and unmask the deceiver. The the dramatising of these encounters in Case Files was a means of satisfying the worker's own sense of accomplishment and creating her own story of professional and personal certainty that she had done the right thing. Above all, caseworkers claim to know and to tell the truth about a client's poverty. As American historian Linda Gordon reminds us, case records were not always scrupulously honest, and sometimes a worker needed to note what she ought to have done, not what she did. But if we're interested in case files as dramatizations of what was meant to happen, as stories written by narrators, that makes the choices they made even more significant. These visitors and investigators usually assumed that the poor lied and dissembled, or at least did not comprehend the real causes and consequences of their situations. For the new kind of professional workers who took over much of the conversation with the poor in American, British and Australian charity after 1920, it was especially important that clients understood the truth about their poverty and that they felt their position. This was the favourite phrase of the Australian and British caseworkers, and it's a telling one. The poor could not be helped until they had accepted a true diagnosis of their condition and its cure. That usually meant a careful exchange of questions and answers in which struggle, workers struggled to unearth secrets and lies. Often with little material and financial aid to give, caseworkers tackled the difficult problem of proving beyond a doubt that an applicant deserved help. Workers probed, probed for details, looked for possible aliases, contacted other agencies for case histories, asked local shopkeepers and interviewed neighbours. They probed the silences and the admissions and tried to find truth in the accuracy of the applicant's language and the sincerity of their feelings. They knew words could be deceptive, that they could be spun into stories. So the choreography was physical as much as verbal. Caseworkers evaluated gestures, expressions, dress and physical surroundings. People could learn how to simulate genuine feeling and could mimic the truly needy. It was delicate and demanding work. If case files can show us how poverty was explained by stories, they can also help us see how social and economic hierarchies were described and defended, and sometimes questioned. American historian Daniel Walkowitz argued that the professional welfare workers of the first three decades of the 20th century played a crucial role in the, in the real and symbolic construction of class identity and authority. As they patrolled what he termed the borders of class, they also dramatised and enacted them. Autobiographies and testimonies make clear that many 20th century people learned about their class position from their contacts with social workers, child protectors and charity investigators, with policemen and police women, teachers, priests, ministers, missionaries and welfare nurses. This is especially true for women and for children and for men rendered dependent by unemployment, illness and incapacity. And as they examined and investigated their clients, social workers also, of course, made and remade themselves. The writer wrote her own life story as well as her clients. If the language and experience of class is sometimes forged in factories or in mines or on the political stage, it's also made and remade on doorsteps and porches, in kitchens and living rooms, in intimate skirmishes between investigators and investigated, and crucially in relationships between women. If social work was a mostly female profession, working class wives and mothers in Australia, Britain, and the United States also tried as far as possible to keep exchanges with outsiders in their own hands. One of the fascinating things about men in this in this kind of um, in these encounters is how unstable they were. So men would tend to sort of shout at the social worker. And then the wife would go to the social work office, apologise for the man, and restart the narrative um, back before the man sort of damaged it. So one of the real difficulties women had was managing what men did in these encounters, which was often quite disruptive. Or they'd go and tell the truth, uh, which, which wasn't always a great thing either. So women would spend months carving this delicate story only for their husband to kind of disrupt it. But I think... One of the things that I wanted to, to talk about in this book was that, was in a sense, women did, and arguably still do, much of the hardest and most exacting work in the management of inequality. Of course, the authority of those workers was always ambivalent. In the agencies I studied, they mostly reported to and were supervised by male secretaries and committees on which men, men outnumbered women. Though in the United States, more women rose into supervisory positions by the end of the 1920s. Responses to this problem of female authority varied. Women case workers in Melbourne and London, for instance, created new forms of gender-specific capacity. They claimed that women were much better at detective investigation and case writing than men were and American social workers too, women often claimed a clear link between a specifically feminised personal knowledge of clients and social work's most important means of professional um, identity, the well-authored case file. In other words, women were better questioners and better writers. At the same time, I think, a focus on case files, perhaps more than policy and administrative records, helps us consider how the work of women might have mattered to social work, and especially its emerging dramatisations of poverty and inequality. If we can ask, in other words, how social work helped create certain kinds of professional femininity or female leadership, we can also ask how women's involvement in charity welfare and casework made a real difference to how those movements grew and what they achieved. In each of the places explored here... I probably haven't told you those, actually. Melbourne, Boston, Minneapolis, London and Oregon. Um, In each of the places explored here, it's possible to say that women tempered social work and shaped the experience of poor people in a number of very important ways. For instance, they tended to be much more impatient with men especially those they termed the able-bodied, and to be very unforgiving of men's failings. Women also felt themselves to be better and more patient questioners of children and were more likely to be impressed by poor women's struggle to keep their houses and their children clean. As working women, too, they exhibited a better understanding than men, the importance and the fragility of women's economic independence. When advising younger women, they often emphasised the importance of a skill or a trade or the capacity at least to care for yourself, if need be. It may have been patronising, and sometimes they assumed too easily that their own lives as working women should be a model for others, but it made rather better sense than insisting, as the male investigators tended to, that a life of unthinking obedience to a husband was a matter of like it or lump it. Most important, women could and did develop different relationships with their clients. If they cast people in stories that made them seem immoral and undeserving on the one hand, or intelligent and deserving on the other... They did so, at least, having at least seen and confronted those they were labelling. Proximity to the poor and the focus on everyday welfare work rather than policy was itself gendered. In these agencies, women talked to the poor while men talked to each other about poverty. Accordingly, women were much more likely, I think, to be in a position to listen to the poor and to recognise and share different stories about poverty, And some of what the poor said about unfairness, injustice and unearned disadvantage could, I think, make sense to some women in some contexts, some women workers, in a way that it simply did not to most men, especially elite men. Certainly, the stories about poverty were normally constructed in ways that demeaned the poor, casting them as characters in dramas about inadequacy, deceit and inferiority. But I also want to suggest that at least some of the female caseworkers who listened to poorer women helped reconstruct the story of poverty, inequality and welfare in the first half of the 20th century. It wasn't all or nothing, and much of the work in case files and archives that might challenge or bear out that claim remains to be done. But it reminds us that as women caseworkers grappled with the problems of translating expected practice into actual social work on the ground... They could and sometimes did begin exploring a very different story. Perhaps poorer women, too, could say things to other women they could not have said to men, even across the boundary of class. In case files, we occasionally see writers bearing witness to the truths that poor people, and especially poor women, had been trying to share all along. Some never wavered from their belief in the stupidity and ignorance of the poor. But in some places and times, in conversations among women, and despite all those tactical um, nuances we've been exploring, just in some places and times, some of the women who listened to the poor began to wonder if what the poor were saying about their poverty might be true after all. And in that way, changing attitudes to welfare and poverty in the middle of the last century might find some of their explanation, not just in what men thought about policy, but what social working women actually did on the ground. I'll come back to those changes over time, as they happen in different ways in different places, and I want to discuss what my comparisons show about variations in place. And here I hope that the, your own sort of discussions and explorations about the history of Irish poverty will, will, will be um, helped. As they wrote about their encounters with the poor, these social workers chose different colours from the palette of possibilities. This in part reflected their particular agencies, client groups and missions. They drew up on specific fates and different forms of training and they were often very conscious of how their work differed from that of other organisations. But variations in place were not simply an outcome of contrasting agencies or responsibilities. They also helped illuminate what the people of different places wanted to say and do about poverty. That in a sense was I think the essence of the book. Did it differ? Was there anything different in how Americans, Britons or Australians dramatised the problem of poverty and inequality? So I based my historical comparison on a series of questions. How did the people of different places interpret a similar set of problems over a roughly similar time? If poverty has has to always be explained by means of a story about its origins and its overcoming, to what extent did those stories differ or not differ across time and place? What were the social problems that preoccupied workers in those different locations? What did they focus on and what did they ignore? It was a comparative approach, though it might also be a transnational one, because it tracks ideas and practices that moved across national boundaries. In my view, the two work together... Certainly I'm interested in the light that comparison sheds upon what people in different nations made of themselves. As we were discussing this morning, I think one of the really interesting things for me is the way that, that social workers in their in their dealings with clients dramatised their cases in ways that express their version of their of their national identity, that they would talk about themselves as, as as sort of carrying out a British or an American or an Australian social work. And that clearly meant something about national differences. And, of course, they used different cultural references to explain their situations. They were often very transnational in their careers, but they were very national in the way they understood social and economic problems. So I I used the chaos files to ask if and how stories differed. What they confirm is a broadly Anglo-Australian approach in which poverty was largely interpreted as a problem of character and an American approach in which there was a much stronger faith in redemptive transformation, at least for some of the poor. In London, workers describe themselves as spectators. They often use the image of sitting in theatre seats watching their clients, as they would say, shamble across the stage. Nothing changes, it's a sort of a performance. In Melbourne, the workers style themselves as lady detectives, masters of a careful choreography of questions and bodily observations that unveiled the undeserving. In Boston and Minneapolis, social workers pictured themselves as magicians who could help the poor unpick the threads of their heritage and reassemble themselves as Americans. The Oregon story was different again. Here, welfare workers dramatised a different kind of frontier. As they looked out into what they described as a disordered and only just civilised backwards of fanatics, hunchbacks and half-breeds, their drama traced degeneration at a scale that justified segregation, institutionalisation and even sterilisation. Let me explore those comparisons in more detail. The Melbourne Inquiry Offices explained class inequalities in terms of character, including the ability to be truthful and to feel ashamed by your need for assistance. So respectable people were always ashamed by the fact that they were poor. And in Melbourne, the case files were written as detective stories and the most elaborate used detective motifs. A mysteriously closed door, the trace of cigarette smoke in a just-emptied room, a lipstick smudged glass on a table, a bed moved to block a doorway. Workers examined gestures, expressions, dress and physical surroundings. The truth could be found hidden in cupboards and crannies, even in piles of rubbish from which the agency's greatest detective, Miss Cutler, on more than one occasion emerged triumphant with bottles and cigarette butts. Undeservingness bore its traces in too much makeup, in nicotine stains on the fingers, or a crying spell that seemed rehearsed. People had to visibly feel their position and show the evidence of genuine need in their clothes, their furnishings, and their faces, so as to be counted, and this was the favourite phrase of the Melbourne workers the type which does not ask for assistance and therefore deserves it. So only those who don't ask deserve. It's a fascinating way of thinking about entitlement. Too much skill was dangerous, for a claimant must never know how to make her case appear needy. For applicants, this demanded an almost inhuman control over body and gesture, and people were refused assistance because of their vague and smirking manner, their furtive eyes, their evasive faces, or merely because her eyes flickered just a little so I knew she was lying.' So again, we go back to this morning to, to talk to think about the incredible difficulty of this work, and I think especially I would say both from my work with contemporary women living in poverty and these women, the, the incredible work that women in poverty have to do to maintain entitlement, um, to maintain uh, a capacity to receive. And the fascination with finding lies, I think, partly rested on a determination to protect the agency from what Melbourne always thought would be an army or an avalanche of beggars and cadgers. With little to give, these workers struggled to make terribly hard decisions, and some clients lied, usually in pathetic attempts to garner a few shillings for a drink or because they resented the implication that to be in need meant revealing everything to a charity investigator. There were in the hundreds of files I I read only three cases of real fraud, all of them perpetrated by respectable people who were able to so effectively mimic refined suffering that detective investigation was suspended for fear of increasing their embarrassment. All of them stole more than £10 and ran off, never to be found again. They were usually purported to have left for Sydney, which is always in Melbourne assumed to be the natural destination of cheats and liars. But I think... The, the determination to reveal lies, indeed the Melbourne workers, I think for the Melbourne workers, the view was the truth could not be known until the lie had been revealed so every client lied so you had to find the lie before you could tell the truth and what it helped establish I think that was is this that when Im- impoverished people spoke, the, their accounts of the world were incorrect it made everything they said suspect and helped ensure that outside interpreters, not the poor themselves, controlled the dramatisation of poverty. This was most evident when applicants were foolish enough to blame governments, mass unemployment, the system, the bosses or capitalism, and had to be reminded that their problems began with their own failings. With most, it was less direct. They were usually described as stupid or dull. They talked foolishly about vulnerability or said that luck and not character had played the major part in causing their problems. Some dared to suggest that the rich were obliged to help the poor. It was at this point that they were reminded that they were not the best judge of what should be done for them and how it should be done. These revelations were not generally savage. Most of the people who were corrected were still given something. But assistance was always predicated upon a general truth, that clients must never break, that whatever the impoverished sometimes said, they did not understand poverty. In London, there was little of the suspense that accompanied Melbourne's lady detectives, still less of the saving transformations common in Boston and Minneapolis. If comparison makes striking what seems less so in its own place and time, what is striking about the dramatisation of poverty in interwar London is the sense of unshakable class difference that caseworkers displayed in their descriptions of the poor. More than anywhere else, the London visitors watched the poor from a distance and with a sense of great detachment. With little faith in transformation, Transformation, they had no hope for the poor and little interest in reforming them. Indeed, they often found them and described them in their files as exceedingly or remarkably stupid. The London workers lacked the rigor of Miss Cutler, and they rarely approached the forceful or optimistic determination of the women who visited the poor in Boston. The case notes from those from those other cities are forensic in their intensity. There is rancid milk and decaying food. Torn curtains limply respond to a breeze. Half clean washing strained against jack toothed pegs. Social workers have grasped at clues, seized the moment, and stepped through partly barred doorways. They wrote themselves as heroes. In London, the social worker was more detached, her progress less determined. London's poor were always hard to find. They were somewhere down the stairs or in some flat down the street. If Miss Cutler always found her woman, London's Miss Harding usually just missed her or couldn't find the right house or dwelling or block of the estate in which she was set to live. It didn't really matter, as she would probably shuffle back into the district office for more assistance before too long. In Interwar London, class difference was fixed and solid. The equation between class and character was the same one the Melbourne workers made, but it was made in Melbourne less confidently and it had to be continually refreshed. In the more mobile society of Melbourne, in what was still a migrant city to an extent, the fear of dissembling, the fear of passing for someone who you were not, generated a stronger need to prove and reprove the solidity of a relationship between character and class. What in Melbourne seemed to still need proving seemed in London to need hardly any proving at all. So in both Melbourne and London, the drama of poverty did not focus on change or uplift or transformation, but on revelation and judgment. These were dramas about truth revealed and pauperism prevented, not the sufferer transformed. And they cast themselves explicitly against other kinds of approaches, whether this was what they saw as an unhelpful Catholic emphasis on mercy, identification with the poor, or the Salvation Army's meddlesome attempts to help everyone. This made them much less optimistic than their counterparts in America, but it also softened the scale and nature of their interventions. In Melbourne and in London, though the poor might change their behaviour and understand their positions more honestly, there was little point in expecting too much. The agents working for Boston's children agencies or for Minneapolis Fam- Family Welfare Association had a much greater faith in their clients' ability to envisage and even carry out self-improvement. But it also made them, of course, much more impatient with irresponsibility and indolence. Their fascination was the discovery not of lies, but of the transforming remedy. Of course, Boston's impoverished people could rarely become the equals of the social workers, and it was no good, as one young woman was told, to simply dream of the possibilities of occupying some other social positions. There was, still little, there was little doubt that inferior people needed to be reformed, and that reform meant Americanization. Yet these workers regarded more of their clients as redeemable. Their clients were, car- were characters worthy of trust and investment, not characters in oblique drama about fixed human types. Their absorbing task was to make citizens out of the hopeless and good Americans out of old world stock. There was an emphasis on possibility and the transforming power of faith and love. Failure was always possible, but so was unexpected success. And here it was adolescents and young adults, not children, who featured in the best speaking stories. Stories about transformation are perhaps not unexpected in agencies dedicated to the rescue and reform of children. The differences here, though, I think, reflected something as well as that. I think people working in child protection, I think people working in those agencies, had a much greater problem being confident about the truth. Some of the children they saw were in great danger but some accused parents had done nothing but earned the dislike of a neighbour or an anonymous informant. "'Little was clearly black or undeniably white in child protection, "'and what impresses the reader of these case files 70 or 80 years on "'is not how cavalier these workers were, "'but how difficult it was to know what was best to do. "'People lied, exaggerated and used child rescue to punish each other. "'Baby health nurses made true reports and they made false ones. "'Schools saved some children from abuse "'and condemned some families to months of unwarranted suspicion. "'Respectable people said bad things and made false accusations. "'Unrespectable people told the truth.' about awful abuse and violence. So compared, I think, with their counterparts in charity or in family welfare, workers in child protection were quicker to realise that every story had tactics and strategies and that that certainty was much more elusive and also I think that, that, that getting it wrong was much more dangerous. For Boston's child rescue agents, I think the kind of confidence that Melbourne investigators placed in the link between social position, true feeling and character were much harder to preserve. But I think the differences between American and other dramatizations of poverty were also clear in the more general charity work of American agencies. So we must focus, I think, on different religious, ideological and political complexions. And especially, I think, on the power of transformation in American sense of themselves, their past and their future, and its power. Indeed, in how they understood and performed being American themselves that they all, I think, came to social work with a story of their own transformations, with a story of their own progress. And I wonder if this faith in transformation also reflects the fact that when welfare providers in Boston Minneapolis looked across the class boundary, they did not see themselves there, by and large, but two generations of recent immigrants, Italians and Poles, Russian Jews, Scandinavians, Portuguese, French Canadians, as well as now second or third generation Irish and German stock that had at least to some extent made good. And I think this emphasises the power of immigrants to generate new ideas among their hosts about class and character and inheritance. At this time and in this place, and in contrast to both Melbourne and London, the theatre of class and inequality contained many characters whose very mobility showed their willingness to be transformed. They and their children showed that character could be attained and learned and that at least some of the poor could be partners in the struggle to remake themselves. From this group of middle-class Americans working along the borders of class and ethnic difference came stories of capacity and energy and persistence and an argument about the potential for change. There, caseworkers turned Americanization, not finding the liar, into their most significant drama because that was the struggle they saw and that was the achievement they thought their social work could could in some way accelerate. It's highlighted even more by what they were unprepared to imagine, the redemptive transformation of African-Americans, During the 1920s and 1930s, the Massachusetts Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children produced annual reports that were a model of clarity and careful discussion of social work and trends in child protection. They also contained crude jokes and cartoons about our coloured friends. In African-American families, there was no constructive work to be done. As one agent put it, the primitive Negro will always be dominant. So in, in Boston, the difference between possibility and impossibility was a racial one, and a completely fixed racial one. There was another consequence of this too, I think, and this is where I, I sort of come onto listening, because for those who wanted to listen, American immigrants had some very important things to say about the strengths and the, and the limits of effort and initiative, In their failures, they revealed how bad luck and prior disadvantage could derail even the strongest characters. So some of the stories that most intrigued the Boston workers were about people who had tried and failed and what had been the structural factors that caused their failure because their characters weren't questioned. They had tried to become American. They had educated their children, they'd worked... So, so in a sense, that they, were, they were playing the story of I've done my best but were being listened to in a different way because of, because of the, I think, the ethnic, the ethnic d- dimension. And I think what that meant was that people who worked on, along the borders of class in those cities had an opportunity, which only some realised, to learn something of the truth they heard there about effort and about the, the vulnerability of people, whatever their best efforts. It was haphazard and it was patronising But some of these welfare workers could develop conclusions about how and why people failed, in which luck and circumstance, not their characters, stripped away the future. And I argue in the book this also happened in Melbourne and in London. And I don't think I quite explained it, but I sort of tried to gesture towards why. It came later in Melbourne, and I think it came there essentially because the the idea that poverty and wealth, measured effort and character, proved very fragile in the midst of the Great Depression. And it's important to remember that Melbourne had a terrible depression. Um, It it was... Unemployment was at 40 or 50%, kind of almost Belfastian kinds of numbers. And I think that reading these case files helps us grasp something about a reassessment of poverty in mid-century Melbourne that was based at least in part on women social workers listening to the poor... Perhaps their own vulnerabilities as female workers, symbolised in pay cuts and mounting caseloads, increased their sense that social position was no protection against disaster. They began to narrate inequality in new ways, with applicants as the blameless victims of overwhelming economic forces, or even potential collaborators in the struggle to achieve independence. They began using terms like vulnerability or luck, or prior disadvantage, terms they would never have used in the 1920s. They even began to use the term social justice, an unthinkable conceptualisation of poverty's remedy just a decade before, and one that made its way into that society's official sort of masthead in 1935. It was a remarkable kind of transformation. And what's interesting to me is the way in which some of the language of that transformation in the publicity work and whatever mirrored some of the, some of the conversations in the case files. I think that, that they listened uh, in a way they had not before. In London, too, there was a shift in language and the dramatisation of poverty... And here I think the triggers for change were twofold. One was a significant reaction among younger professionalised and women workers against the methods of the past. There was a very strong generational transformation in British social work in the 1940s, led by a whole range of kind of famous heroines of social work who I think took social work away from uh, a kind of character-based approach. But I also argue that I think the war played a remarkably important part in this in Britain. It's very interesting in the files that that same shift that occurs in in Melbourne where social workers begin talking about poverty as a preventable injustice, as a disaster, is strengthened by the Blitz and by what the the CIS calls the nightmare summer days of the flying bombs in 1944. And what I argue is is that in the midst of that kind of experience, it's very hard to argue that people get their just deserts. It's very hard to argue that disaster only happens to people who deserve it. And, and it's partly about the fortitude of the poor, I think, in, in, in the Blitz in London, but I think it's also about that somehow there is this growing sense that sometimes, you know, people are not are not to blame for what happens to them, that terrible things happen to people who have done nothing wrong. Now, it's important not to go too far with this or get too excited about it, I, I hasten to add. If they differed in their assumptions about what to do with the deficient poor, about how much change should be accepted, many of these interpreters of poverty shared and carried into their social work a common idea, that poverty's origin lay in the problems of the poor and its solutions in managing and perhaps overcoming those deficiencies. As people living in poverty were asked to produce accounts and autobiographies of themselves to narrate their struggles and their suffering, they said remarkably consistent things across these different locations, across these different times. They talked about vulnerability, the weight of accumulated disadvantage. They talked about the importance of work for men, of schooling and opportunities for children, of investments in the health and the capacities of mothers. They tried to make clear that poverty had tangled roots. And, of course, they didn't share everything with the visitors... who who saw them, because visitors visitors couldn't always be trusted with the truth. But the words of the poor, I think, were coherent and consistent to the extent they could weave them through the tactics of the the visit. And most of social work storytellers did not learn to listen. There was some change, there were differences... Some, trouble, some workers were troubled and uncertain. A few took a more difficult and, I think, remarkably courageous journey. But for most, there was a fundamental unwillingness to do what actually makes most sense if you want to tackle poverty, which is to learn to see the world through the eyes of the poor. At this point, I want to move back briefly into stories and dramatisations and how I tried to use the case, case files for a different kind of writing. Lindsay was one reviewer who liked the approach. Um, there were others who hated it. Uh, <laughs> really didn't like it a lot, in fact. Um, so it is somewhat contentious, and I'll be interested in what you think. But I think, as we've seen today, anyone who looks at these kinds of records is enthused by their possibilities and completely challenged by the limitations, almost to the point of feeling frozen sometimes, I think, of being unable to write, of not knowing how do you do justice to this, to this remarkable set of testimonies. What, what do you do? Is it best just to shut up? Um, or or should, you, should you press on? Should you try and find a way of writing? And, and what, I, what I was most kind of concerned about was I, I began this book hoping I would, I would find out more about how people living in poverty describe their situations. And, of course, you don't get that. What well, you get lots, lots of words by workers describing uh, those things. But, but also something of what they said is there. Because each I said in these files written by the worker responded to a he said or a she said. What the poor said was reshaped and summarised and amended into phrases they wouldn't have used, but their words remained visible because they were evidence. The workers quoted their clients at length. They garnished their summaries with telling snippets and idiosyncratic expressions. They tried to capture accents and unusual pronunciations and deliberately misspelt words. They took care to note, remember and write down angry, dismissive or challenging things into their files, or words that struck them as particularly revealing of the truth. And clients also knew how important words were. They often asked what was being written or show concern about the permanence of what might be woven from their words. They tried to to control the content of the case. They were performers too. They insisted that certain facts be recorded or they helped their neighbours learn their lines for when the social worker went next door to talk to the shopkeeper or to the neighbours. They sent in their own letters or had letters written on their behalf by someone they assumed the charity organisation society would respect, like a priest or a local dignitary. They tried to inject their own prerogatives into conversations and insist that those asking questions of them also answer questions in return. They wanted to know, as one East Boston woman asked, what, is, what are you writing about thee in your books? It would be many years before the poor won the right to see at least part of what was being written about them, but their demand for that right was a very long-standing, all the way through these files. And that's because words are an important weapon for the strong, but they're just as important for the weak, The poor have always shared stories that shame those who happen to be rich, re-establish a sense of worth, battered by the humiliations of distrustful welfare, or challenge cruel common senses about inequality. Words express entitlements and obligations, and they describe ideal worlds. Even in the fragments in those letters that you were reading out before, you could see that there's this impulse in there to talk about what should be to talk about what should be, what has to be, what we're owed, what we're entitled to. More or less openly, words help the powerless hold the powerful to account. And used imaginatively and carefully, the record of their words is our best resource for understanding what the poor were trying to say and what they were struggling to establish as true. And I draw here upon the the, the brilliant work of anthropologist James Scott in his book Weapons of the Weak where he talks about the hidden transcripts of oral tradition. And so what we have, I think, in the archive of charity and social work is something of the words of the people we, want to, we are trying to listen to. Like, tr- like court transcripts or records of interrogation, these are not documents over which their subjects could easily gain or retain control. Case records were written after the fact and were never intended to be verbatim accounts of what was said. While they weren't as fraught as a legal proceeding, the encounter with a social worker was nonetheless difficult and risky. The truth was not always your friend, especially when the truth might in some way confirm a worker's assessment that you didn't need something. And sometimes, of course, clients were confronted by people who just couldn't understand the truth, whose empathy just simply couldn't stretch too far beneath herself. But the words are there... And almost there. As you look at these records, and I know that Lindsay and, and Owen and others will feel this, and Sarah and I'm sure you will too, it's clear that clients are trying to say something, if only under their breath. As a client is questioned and examined, I find myself wondering all the time, what was she thinking? What would she like to say? What were the words that might have been pressing against her pursed lips? And workers could see things in clients' eyes, and they write them down. She seemed indignant... She grimaced slightly. She started to speak but checked herself. There's something there. It's fleeting and it's half seen. It's not the comfortable introspection of a diary or a private letter. It's public, it's dangerous, and it can mean the difference between getting something, not getting and not getting something you need. But what I wanted to try and do in the book was to explore whether it was possible to use these files for a kind of historical writing that tries imaginatively and truthfully to write clients back into the story to draw back into the spotlight what James Scott so luminously called the offstage conversation of the repressed, to utter what they perhaps dared not, to try and present things as they might have wanted them presented. And sometimes, I think, again, people who work with files will agree that often in a lot of files there's a moment when you can see something that the worker can't. There's a hint... (laughs) Or something occurred further up in the file. They haven't come, kind of, and you've got the benefit of reading it all once. It's not over a couple of years, and it's just, there are twists and turns. Things become clearer in hindsight and sometimes the client has left us something, a word or a phrase, a drawing, a clue, a fragment that suggests another, another way the story could be told. Now it has to be done carefully. History isn't fiction and we can't just invent the outline to the story or change the ending. History is an imaginative and in, an inventive discipline but it must always be a truthful one and it must always make clear the difference between evidence and artifice. Yet we can draw upon the tools of fiction, especially its focus on dramatisation, dialogue and drama, in order to create an account that is real and realistic. It is possible to be truthful, to convey the true meaning of the past by incorporating material that is dramatised, so long as the reader is informed of the difference and knows where the boundaries lie. As I said, some of the reviewers of this book have not liked this at all. What I did was to take six encounters and dramatise them as scripts um, and write the client back, write their voice in and, and try and present the story through their eyes uh, and, in their, and in their terms. So I chose one encounter from each place that I thought really exemplified um, the, 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 kind of the, the story of that particular time and place. So in Melbourne, a story with Miss Cutler in the case of the resurrected horse. In London, Miss Hedges and the stupid client... In Boston, Miss Wells and the Boy Who Wanted to Be an American. In Minneapolis, Miss Lindstrom and the Fried Potatoes. In Oregon, Miss, Miss Perry and the Boy Who Knew Numbers. And I did one also about the small number of men who were, who were moving into social work in the 1930s, and this one set in Boston. is called Mr O'Neill and the, seduct- and the Seductive Client. Um, the longest is about five or six pages. The shortest, around two. Um, the reader has the case notes in the book so they can see... what was in the file, they can see how I dramatised it and I have a resolution section in each where I talk about why I'd made certain choices that I made and in each of these is usually a bit of a secret or a mystery, something that can't be known um, or that the worker neglected to ask and as I say, some, some people have not liked this and I can understand their discomfort but I would argue that there is a greater discomfort for me which is writing again about poverty in a way that renders the poor mute. So, I mean, the, the, the words are there. They're partial, they're half seen, but they're there. They're, they're there enough that I think you can do this work as long as the reader knows that you're doing it. I think, and I, really, I don't think much history is actually all that far from imaginative practice. I think all of us are imagining when we write. So Miss Cutler focuses on, on the dilemma of judgment. Miss Cutler was a, a lady detective. She read Ag- Agatha Christie novels on her way to her cases and she wrote herself as a lady detective. So she would discover things and reveal things about the clients, and aha, she would confront them with the, with the facts of their lies um, and she was a total tartar. And the case that that I use is one, the the case of the resurrected horse, which is is a case in outer Melbourne where a family has loaned money to buy a horse so they can set up a vegetable sort of round with a cart. And they report after about a year that the horse has been in an accident and has been destroyed. And Miss Cutler always liked to visit people without telling them. she just sort of spring herself upon them um, as she was going around. And she arrived at this, this family's house one day, and, and as I dramatise it, sort of marches through the house and comes out to the back, and there's a horse. <laughs> And of course, the wonderful thing is that she never, she never imagines it might be a different horse. <laughs> she assumes it's the same horse, and and so she says, I mean, I have her kind of saying, "Is this it? It lives, it breathes, it has been resurrected," and she, you know, her immediate assumption is that they lied. With actually, it's another horse. It's three years later. They can't live without a horse. They need a horse to ride the kids to school. But she never, ever, ever thinks that maybe it's a different horse. So it's a sort of wonderful chondramatisation of, of her fundamental mistake that the poor lie, that the first assumption is the poor lie. Miss Hedges is about a woman, a social worker, insisting a woman has a baby in hospital and, and the kind of damage this does to that woman's um, pregnancy uh, and, and local relationships. Miss um, Wells and the boy who wanted to be an American is, is a fascinating story. I wish I could sort of tell you all of these in detail, but it's about an immigrant boy... Who is in the child protection system? Um, and what it, what you find in the file right down the bottom is that his his family have been paying the boarding family money the whole way through the child protection case. So his birth family has been paying them. And it becomes very very clear they've been paying this American family to take care of this somewhat difficult kid for them and to Americanize him, like to give you know to, to give him his best chance. So they, I think he got caught up in the juvenile justice system because he was a bit bad. And they thought, oh, well, him for a penny. And, and they sort of they used the system, in a sense, to turn Jersey. And there's this fabulous case where the social worker crosses out his Polish name and writes his, his, his American one. And he becomes George. But actually, he and his parents did that, not the social worker where she presents this as her triumph of Americanization over ignorant immigrant parents. It's the kind of a fascinating story. Miss Lindstrom is about um, a father giving his children fried potatoes for lunch. Uh, I won't go into that one. Um, and, and Mr O'Neill is a tale of seduction. As I, it's essentially about a woman, as I describe it, uh, this is a woman who's, who's been used to social workers for many years um, and is confronted by an ingenue, Mr O'Neill on his first case um, who asks really stupid questions and says really stupid things which he records dutifully in the file, bless him Um, and he then records her trying to seduce him putting putting his hand on her breast and what I write it as is that um, rather than seduction this was subversion and I think she did put his hand on her breast because she was playing with him and she was saying to him Basically, fuck you. Sorry, that's probably not going on the tape. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, she, I think this was her moment, and it was a very dangerous one because this man could take her kids away. But I think this is the moment when she said, enough. I'm, I'm, she says, I'm not answering your questions anymore. I'm not stupid. She keeps saying, I'm not stupid, I'm not stupid. Um, and so I think she just gets a bit of her own back. But I wanted to finish, and I, I, this will only be about five minutes or so, with, with the fifth story, which is the one from Oregon. And I'll try not to cry when I read this, because it, it always moves me a lot. But I, I think um, I've actually performed some of these dramas with actors in, in other workshops. I decided not to do that here, because otherwise we had a different, somewhat different kind of focus. But th- this, this story um, is behind one of my dramatisations. And, and I, hope, I hope what it illustrates is just how much the stories of the past might do something which I think is really important for histories of poverty, which is to, to move hearts and change minds. And, and I do think that we, we, we have to accept that, I think, as part of what we do in writing about this stuff. Because it's hard to write about this stuff. We, we've seen that today, I think. It's tough. I think the payoff, and maybe we call it impact, is, is when you see that something that you write maybe moves a heart or changes a mind. Um, so it a 's a, a story about a boy who in Oregon who was dismissed as feeble minded um, and this boy, who was just fourteen in one thousand nine hundred and twenty one left us a fleeting glimpse of who he was and who he might have become i 've called him Earl. His father first came to the Oregon Child Welfare Commission to protest earl 's confinement in the state institution for the feeble minded. And one of the things that Oregon did a lot in the 1920s and 30s was to incarcerate the uh, so-called feeble-minded. There was a kind of... uh, ..a supposed feeble-minded epidemic. And so they incarcerated and usually sterilised teenagers in particular. Um, uh, Earl's mother had deserted... He'd been boarded out, but his foster mother reported that he masturbates continuously and has a licentious mind. He'd been expelled from school for viciousness and then placed in an institution, uh, the, the feeble-minded institution. His father had taken him out and put him in temporary care with nuns at a Catholic boy's home, and he was trying to find a housekeeper so that he could actually bring Earl and his brothers back into the, into the home. And the, 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 the case was given to a, a worker there who I called uh, Edith Perry, um, And what they eventually kind of discover... And and Earl's father, who is mostly illiterate, he he can write sort of, but I think he gets people to help him. Um, He's constantly trying to say, I think my son is sick. I think he's ill. Um, And what happens then is that um, there's a kind of a last diagnosis, which is lethargic encephalitis, um, which, of course, was epidemic... in in America in the 1920s called a sleeping sickness and often related to the great flu virus of of 1918-19 or it was severe epilepsy those were the two choices the doctors came with Um, in either case um, Earl was diagnosed back to the feeble-minded institution and his father made one more try to get him out um, but couldn't and left with Edith Perry Um, some of the letters that he'd collected from the nuns, from the priest, and so on. And what I sort of had to wonder when I looked at these letters was whether Edith Perry ever turned those letters over. Um, And what I did in my dramatisation was to make her turn these letters over, and I'll tell you why that's important in a second. But it's the point at which what might have happened diverges from what I know did, But I I think if she ever had, I wonder if it would have given her pause and made her wonder if a home for incurables and so-called imbeciles was Earl's last or best hope. I always wondered if she'd ever unfolded a sheet. As he sat in his father's house one day in 1922, perhaps told to amuse himself, Earl used the only paper there was to hand, those letters. As I sat in the state archives more than 80 years later, turning those pages over... I wonder which of them Edith Perry might have seen. Um, Sorry, how'd you get a bit talk about this? (laughs) Perhaps um, his list of all the children in his small town. Eighty or so names, written from memory. On the same sheet is another list called My Girls, the girls he liked. There's a poem about driving a car. There's a sheet with drawings of detailed geometric shapes, all of them labelled... And I imagine what she might have done if she'd seen the one covered in complicated multiplications. In some, Earl had to write down the number he carried, but most he did in his head. And there's one sheet on which he completed a mental long division of two eight-digit numbers without making any other calculations. He must have been pleased, for next to that one he wrote, ha. Of all the... um, people who lived in the past children perhaps stretch the flimsiest threads into the future we know things about earl that he was supposedly half-witted perverse and stubborn but these few remnants of his own voice these unwitting projections of himself into the future accidentally saved because they backed onto something that was considered worth keeping suggest intelligence wit and whimsy Perhaps he was eccentric and difficult, there's no doubt he was ill, but I wonder what might have been his fate had he come from what the Child Welfare Commission called a superior home. I wonder what might then have been found for his care. And at 15, he entered the state feeble-minded institution, as far as I can tell, for the last time. Perhaps his father tried to take him out again, perhaps they went somewhere there wasn't a history to damn them. It's more likely, I think, that his father accepted the final verdict and that Earl, as a consequence, was probably sterilised. And I think that um, you have to, in dealing with this, this material sometimes, you, there are things that you feel incredibly deeply. And what I felt here was not sort of um, anger with Edith Perry, but, but sort of dismay at her limitations, at what she was able to achieve with no time and no resources but also that she never, in the end, trusted the father or the son and what they said was wrong. That that she, she was forced to make terrible decisions, but she didn't use the resource of listening to the people she was making the decisions about. And I think that was the kind of the... She never gave herself, in a sense, the opportunity to find out what could have been. And in the end, I think I want to stress that... What I take to be the particular task of any history of poverty is to write dramatically and truthfully about the past in order to open up a sense of possibility about the present and the future. Poverty remains persistently misunderstood as first and foremost a problem caused by the poor. And it seems strange to have to say that again, doesn't it, for those of us a bit older, to have to say in the 2010s again that, that poverty is not caused by the poor. And it's where I think a new history focusing on interactions and dramatisations might be particularly important and timely. Case files show us how what is witnessed and heard are turned into stories that explain problems and solutions. They provide a window into the work that people do to make sense of inequality, often in defence, sometimes in question. But in the end, I think these files tell us one thing above all else, that too many well-intentioned people made a tenacious mistake... Whatever the truth of individual circumstances, a good deal of social work rested upon a larger and more significant conviction. that poor people didn't understand poverty, which encourages its practitioners to believe that the poor should be distrusted. And that means that you don't need to listen to what they say and to the truth they know and to what their experience helps demonstrate. And the deficiency of that is highlighted by what happens when, in the flashes of lightning, that mistake is challenged and some of the people who are meant to police charity and welfare begin to learn that the poor were telling the truth and to bear witness to that truth. Those people had the courage to both care and listen and, in the end, I think our histories of poverty have to also focus on them.